Namo tasa bhagavato harahato samma sambodasa Namo tasa bhagavato harahato samma sambodasa Namo tasa bhagavato harahato samma sambodasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. Uh, before uh, we carry on with the hindrances, there's uh, a question here about um, the position of the observer, uh, the nota, as in noting, and that and being in the here and now. <clears throat> So if you consider uh, you know, various experiences we have as levels of consciousness. So um, when we're in the body, uh, totally involved in the body, say when we're eating, or the, the example I gave, uh, you know, when you trap your finger in a door, just for, that <laughs> just for that one moment, one is the body. So let's call that a sort of body consciousness, then uh, <clears throat> we, we can move up or move across to an emotional consciousness where we're aware we are our emotions <clears throat> uh, and we are our thinking. So um, most people uh, live in that sort of, that sort of level. Hmm? Now... When we pull out of that to make those our objects, we've obviously shifted the position of this knowing. Before it was a body knowing, then it became an emotional thinking knowing, and now it's observing and leaving those particular areas of identity. So it's found a different level of consciousness. And what we mean by that is that its relationship has changed to uh, the experience of being a human being. Yeah? Uh, now, that's as far as we can go by an act of will. You can only get to that point of being the observer. You can only get to the point of being a knower. You can't lose that sense of self, the observer, by an act of will. Yeah, you can try it if you want. Because every time you try and get rid of it, you create another self which is trying to get rid of the self that you're trying to get rid of. <laughs> it's impossible. It's like, a, it's like two mirrors looking at each other. So uh, the, um, the image that I use is when you watch a TV and you can see yourself in the TV watching the TV. Yeah? So now you have a, a choice. You're going to watch yourself watching TV or you're going to watch TV. See? Now, that, that mirror of the self, that feeling of a self, that sense of presence that we have is that mirror image of this knowing in the mind. And it's the subtlest and first object we make. And that is a, a uh, what do you call it, a, um, a manifestation of self. So self isn't a thing, it's a relationship. 
Yeah? Now, how do we now jump to the highest level of awareness or knowing, which is the one beyond that self, that identity with the observer? See, we identify with it. We do it by constantly displacing our attention on what it is we're looking at. And because we're coming from that level of knowing, we enter into the situation from a point of no self, N-no-self. See? If there's a self there, there'll be some form of attachment. There'll be some form of um, one of the... uh, Shadows are one of the colorations of self, which is to to bring it into its own relationship, to to make it its own. You see, and you don't know you've done that until you've lost it. You don't know what your attachment is or the strength of your attachment until what it is you're attached to disappears. See, so you don't know, for instance, your attachment to your job or your house, or your, your TV, until the job disappears, <laughs> uh, the house is repossessed, and your TV breaks down. I mean, that's probably the worst. <laughs> so so you, don't, you don't know. This is, the, this is our, our problem. We don't know the strength of our attachments. So we don't know the strength of our attachment to life until it's threatened in some way. Hmm? And so we welcome these moments of threatening because (laughs) they show us this wrong relationship we have. And in showing us that, we can get into the feel of that fear, because the fear is the measure, is the expression of that relationship. See, And the more we can let the fear go, the more we can stop stop, um, an unconscious panic, which is the fear of the fear and stay just with the fear, the more we're undoing the manifestation of self. Hmm? So that's why we say the Buddha is the fearless one. It's one of his little adjectives. Because he's nothing to be afraid of. Like Everything that he experiences is not experienced as belonging to him or being him. So therefore, what's the problem? Yeah, It's the same thing as, um, oh, I don't know... Um, you know, it's like <clears throat> if something steal, if somebody steals something from you, say, supposing they, oh, I know, uh, say, <clears throat> run off with your TV or something, <laughs> since we're on about TVs, uh, we're forever going around saying, they took my TV. My TV, but not your TV, it belongs to the thief, they've got it, <laughs> they own it. <laughs> so this my. It's just a legal construct, which we've all agreed with. We all think it's your TV. But, <laughs> but, but it's, just, it's just an agreement that we've agreed between us. It's got nothing to do with the TV. <laughs> the TV belongs to whoever's using it. <laughs> and so, so once you realise that, that actually you can't really own anything, all you can do with objects is use them. So this loosens up your relationship with things. See, that's basically what these insights do. They loosen us up, see? Of course, if somebody else's TV is stolen, you know, you're full of sympathy, but, you know. <laughs> well, you shouldn't have left your house open, all that sort of stuff, you see. But there's no pain, is there? See? It's their TV. No, no. You're only suffering when it's your TV that goes. 
So, um, uh, this um, knowing, you see, now, um, the reason we access this point of the observer is because it is a non-attached position. I don't say detached, right? Detached uh, suggests a sort of cutting off, uh, a sort of um, non-relationship. But non-attachment is a relationship whereby you don't have an emotional connection with something. So if in truth um, we, our relationship to the TV is that it is just an object and you know, I'm just using it, and somebody, even though I paid for it, and somebody does uh, nick it, uh, there's no pain. There's no pain, because I didn't have this relationship with it. See? And in that non-relationship, I can be very generous and say, oh, well, perhaps they need a TV more than me. And if I ever meet them, I'll... No, it's just that. <laughs> just letting... That generosity comes natural with, with non-attachment, you see. So, when we're in the position of the, of the observer, you see, and you're in the position of the observer when you are aware of intention. That's the point. As soon as you're aware of an intention, you have the ability to sit back and say, is this wholesome or unwholesome? See, normally speaking, our intentions grab us, and before we know it, we, we're, just, we're just caught up in that desire, in that grasping. So by pulling ourselves this way and recognizing an intention, then we have this moment of reflection. And it's the reflection based on wholesomeness, a wholesome attitude, which allows us to enter into the experience in this non-attached way. As we enter into the experience in a non-attached way, we may still experience ourselves as the experiencer, the observer. But as our uh, concentration grows, as it were, we lose ourselves into that experience and we lose that self-consciousness. Now, that's meditation in action. See? When you come out of that, there's been no sense of self and no sense of time. Time belongs to a sense of self. And yet the job's done well, and you can let it go, and that's it. See? So <clears throat> what we're learning here, especially in the, in the working period, is to develop that attitude of recognizing our intention, being able to uh, make a wholesome intention. See? The unwholesome intention may be there, but we're not empowering it. And by doing so, we're constantly training ourselves to come from the, from the point of wisdom rather than from the point of delusion or attachment. See? And uh, what we realize, or begin to realize, is that it's in those moments when we've lost the sense of self and there is no sense of time that it, we are perfectly unadulteratedly happy. And that's the problem with happiness. You don't know you're happy while you're being happy. And when you know you're happy, you've already lost it. So happiness isn't an emotional state. They come and go. 
Happiness is a level of existence, a level of being, or better still, a level of knowing, a level of consciousness. And that's what we're accessing. So when Sariputta, he says, when people ask Sariputta, who is this, you know, uh, second, uh, second to the Buddha in his understanding and experience, <clears throat> when they said to him, look, you talk about the bliss of Nibbana, but there's no emotions in Nibbana. See, there's, there's our constant confusion. He says, no, he said, it's the very absence of emotions, which is the bliss of Nibbana. <laughs> now, that's, that's a bit heavy. That's a bit, you know, like... It's because we associate happiness with a mental state. And it's through this practice that we begin to realise that, fine, mental states arise and pass away, and they're lovely, you know. I mean, talking about the beautiful ones. But we don't see them as home base. That's not what we're trying to get to. They just arise and pass away and they're fine. See? And by, by developing that sort of attitude, uh, we don't get drawn into a wrong relationship with our emotional, mental life. See? Now, that's what you're trying to develop here. You're sitting here and this stuff's coming up. Um, let's say that for... A few moments of the day, happiness arises. <laughs> some some joyous state, some happiness, some spaced out state, you see. So our immediate reaction is to just dive into it. Yippee! And sort of wander off. <laughs> Finally, a bit of happiness. So <laughs> now that's our, in a sense, our mistake. See? Understandable, because the rest of the day has been miserable. But it's still a mistake. If we can just stay with it, uh, walk with it, accompany it, See it as a friend, see? Don't actually um, define ourselves as being happy because there is happiness. All the time we're, re- we're discovering this other place, you see? Discovering this other place. Now that takes us to this first um, hindrance, the one around desire, the one around uh, seeking happiness in the sensual world. The sensual world here means really everything that we experience. And the, the thing to grasp is that the Buddha's not saying that we have to get rid of the sensual world. See, Then you're into a form of self-mortification, which is easy to... Uh, it's an easy mistake to make. Like, for instance... You wouldn't feel hungry if, if you've done some fasting. After about three days, four days, you just don't feel hungry. Right? The reason is the body's eating itself. <laughs> so you just don't feel hungry. So if you keep your appetite down, if you really thin out your body, then there isn't much appetite, and therefore there's no greed. See? And if you keep away from luscious meals and, and curry shops and things like that, then you don't excite anything, and you never suffer from greed. And therefore you're saying, ah, Greed is caused by the body. And that's where you get into self-mortification. Because then you start thinking that the body is at fault. Yeah? Um, it's, the same, it's the same sort of mistake that you might find in, in, in certain traditions uh, where they think that you know, erotic desires, um, lust, all those sorts of things are caused by the body. See? So if you do that, of course, you start punishing the body. You start making, making life miserable for yourself. Hmm? Now, what the Buddha is saying is that all those things are just a natural consequence of being in beings. They're part of our birthright, for heaven's sake. Hmm? 
Our problem is our relationship to it. And this is where we make the mistake of seeking happiness, real happiness in sensual pleasure. And therefore, whenever in meditation here a desire arises, we're just we're watching that pleasure arise, be it a physical pleasure, such as eating, or a mental pleasure, a joy, a happiness. And we're watching it, and we're just interested in what our relationship is to it. See? What our relationship is to it. And that relationship is one of grasping, holding, trying to maintain it. Sometimes in your meditation, you, you, know, you might have a lovely blissed-out feeling, you see. And then you come back to the next sitting, right, I'll get blissed out, and there's misery there. <laughs> it's just un, unalloyed misery. You go, oh, bloody hell. So, <laughs> or, or you're there, then this beautiful state arises, you see, and then it begins to fade away. <laughs> you go, <say, okay." laughs> try to get it back. <laughs> so our, our job is, is to find this easiness this easiness with the arising and passing away of pleasurable states. And that distinction between enjoying something and indulging something is very fine. It really is very fine. It's difficult to separate. Um, the gratification. Now, why is it... Um, you know, where does the compulsive nature of these things come from? Why are they so... I mean, if you like ice cream or something, you know, then uh, one can imagine one would buy so much ice cream. But when it becomes an addiction, when you have to have ice cream, there's a suggestion that something else is empowering that system. And what the Buddha points out is that we're using pleasure to run away from pain. Now, if you watch any time that you're after something which is pleasurable, just check out how you actually feel, you see? And you may, be, you may be surprised to find that what's really pushing you into that pleasure also, not just the attraction of the pleasure and the pleasure and the joy that comes with it, is that you're running from this beast that's biting you in the back. <laughs> so, uh, one of the things about... Uh, about, say, real addiction. So we know that people who really get addicted, whether it's alcohol or drugs, are deeply unhappy people. And, and, and they're finding an escape into that for at least some happiness, you see. And it's being driven by this pain which they cannot face, cannot deal with. It's just stuck in the system. And they, don't, they might not even know it's there. See, that's the point. It's a subconscious, subliminal thing. And that's why addictions are so powerful, are so, are so difficult to overcome. And if you take any of your habits that you enjoy, you see, you'll see that as you stop it, you wonder, like there's a, a lot of pain come up. You know, even a cup of tea, for heaven's sake. See, I put it to you tomorrow to abandon tea for a day. <laughs> I've, I've always said, once I stop drinking tea, you'll know that I'm fully liberated. <laughs> So, you know, <laughs> so it's a case of um, recognizing that whenever we attach to something, I, I, I would say 100%, but I mean, how can you prove that? Uh, there's also, we're hiding away from some pain, we're hiding away from something. Now, um, what happens when you, um, when we start indulging in something? What happens, you see? So we're seeking happiness. Now, the problem with 
sensual pleasure or with any of the joys of life is that they have an inbuilt obsolescence in the sense that you can't keep doing the same thing all the time and getting the same buzz. Right? You've got to move on to the next thing. Right? If it's, if it's uh, you know, chocolate one day, the next day it's got to be humbugs. It's got to, you've, got to, you've got to shift the, uh, the excitement. You've got to shift the sensual base. You've got to do something which changes. And hence we get this phrase, variety is the spice of life. But um, this chasing, you see, uh, has, shall we say, um, an inbuilt um, uh, problem to it because eventually, um, no matter how much you're chasing this, it begins to backfire upon you and in between times you begin to suffer from this, from this boredom. Yeah? Now, boredom can be really vicious. It's a, not a very pleasant state. And when it arises, we tend to shoot away from it as quick as we can. Boredom. And that boredom, remember, um, when it really begins to hit, when the pleasures of life begin to uh, move away from us, um, either through ageing or through uh, loss of finance or something <laughs> like that, or whether it's just that we've... We can't get, we can't squeeze any more blood out of the stone. <laughs> it's, like, it's like you can't get any more pleasure from something that you once found pleasurable. This boredom, uh, you know, moves towards meaninglessness, see? Because the whole of your life has only meant something while you were indulging in this. I'm not just talking about sweets, I'm talking about your job. I'm talking about things that have meaning for you. And therefore your life suddenly becomes meaningless. And meaninglessness takes you to despair. And despair takes you to suicide. And suicide can be physical or it can be mental. Yeah, you can just fall asleep all the time or take drugs. You can try and destroy your consciousness because you can't bear the meaninglessness of life. So the, uh, the, uh, this whole business about pleasure that this society is caught up in, you can understand all, all the problems we have. It's all based on this on this wrong chasing. So boredom is a, is a big problem. Now, so how do you overcome boredom, you see? How do you overcome boredom? Well, I have my dear father to thank for that because way back when I was a kid, I used to play the piano, you see. He used to, well, try and play the piano. And uh, I remember once saying to him, I'm really bored, Dad. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. So I was really bored, you know. And he said, don't worry, son, just keep doing it. You'll see it'll come. And I did, I kept, I kept doing it, and blow me down, the tune come. And that was the answer to boredom, repetition. Right? Whenever you're bored at something, you just keep doing it with good intention, and blow me down, the boredom disappears. See? Don't ask me. I mean, it's a case of, it's a case of uh, not indulging the boredom, so you're not indulging the boredom, yeah? And by placing your attention on something, you are raising that interest naturally. And the boredom disappears. See? So the answer to boredom is not seeking another delight, but actually staying with what you've got. Now, I'm not suggesting you do this with chocolate. Right? <laughs> I'm talking about the, the, the important things of life, like the boredom of your job. Um, you can't do a job without going through periods of boredom with it. Um, relationships, yeah, they get boring. And, I mean, once you've been with somebody, what, 
four or five years. You know, it's like there's nothing to know, is there? So you've got to keep pumping your attention into that, into that relationship. You've got to pump your attention into that into that job, and you know, like it moves. Suddenly, the interest arises again, and with it, of course, development. With it, with with development. So that's one of the real downsides of indulgence, right? This boredom, which is really very prevalent in our society. Um, then you get the aftermath of indulgence. So <clears throat> if you can't get what you want, it's frustration. Yeah? You're very frustrated when you can't get what you want. If you have something and you lose it, you get grief. Yeah? And underneath this clinging, because remember, your happiness is dependent on this, there runs a base of anxiety. Hence the insurance industry. <laughs> Which makes millions out of our anxiety. Billions, for heaven's sake. So uh, once you've begun to contemplate this business of pleasure, you think, well, maybe I ought to, <laughs> maybe I ought to begin to let go of of seeing real happiness as part of, uh, as being found in the pleasures and joys of life. So now you see, you have to be careful, we don't make the mistake of becoming detached because we're afraid. And this, this actually happens a lot in the, um, in the monastic life. Um, I was like telling this story. I, um, you know, we, uh, we sit in a row and get and get fed according to the years that you've been in the order. It doesn't matter your age or, or how enlightened you are. It depends <laughs> how long you've been in the order, you see. And I was sitting next to this uh, monk who was slightly uh, a couple of years older than me. And uh, it was somebody's birthday, so they were serving this rather delicious food. It was in Sri Lanka. And uh, the last bit was ice cream with um, fruit salad. See, it was rare, you know. And uh, so they came along. And when it was all served, of course, uh, all the monks and the meditators, because we sit opposite them in this particular place, um, we're all eating, see, but this guy, I can feel him, he's staring at this plate, staring at it. You know, and if you, if you ever met him, he's the, he's the perfect image of the ascetic, grim, you know, <laughs> sort of thin, beardy, you know. So, <laughs> he's a good man. So I... Um, I was wondering, what the hell are you doing? You know, so we ate it, you know. And just as we were sort of beginning to finish, he sort of very ceremoniously sort of picked it up, lifted it up, saying, <laughs> got it down as quick as he could, <laughs> just in case it touched his tongue, you know. <laughs> so, like this was the beast. Mara the beast. So we don't want to get into a state of detachment, right? So how do we overcome these, uh, this non-attachment? Um, it's always to do with intention. So as soon as you entered into a lovely space, a lovely place, uh, a good job and whatnot, uh, go in with the right intention. So if it's, if it's something you eat, it's there for, for nourishment. So fine, sometimes, you know, we feast, so that's fine. That's also a jubilation. That's also the intention there is to rejoice, you see. And you're rejoicing by sharing food with each other. You see, um, if you do it every day, of course, you might consider <laughs> how it is you're, you're always eating caviar. <laughs> so it's okay. But there are times you want to rejoice, and those times are times of um, 
we call it mudita, or the sympathetic joy, and I'll be talking about that another time. If it's uh, if it's a job, you see, you're going with a sense of service. So it's just by you know being quite self-conscious about your intention, which gets you the right relationship with uh, what it is that you enjoy. And once we've caught on to that, you'll see. It doesn't, you know, like it, things arise. There's always going to be, so long as there's a self, there's only going to be a bit of frustration and grief and anxiety. But it's not going to be, it's not going to overpower us. It's not going to, it's not going to bowl us over, you see. And um, so this whole business around desire really needs, you know, contemplation. I mean, to actually consider these things in our lives and to... Um, uh, bring it very much into our daily life, daily life, you see. And that's one of the reasons for the contemplation of anicca, of, of impermanence, you see. Because the Buddha states quite clearly that once we've grasped impermanence, we can see there's nothing in the world worth holding on to. Nothing in the world worth holding on to. Just let that, you know, let it sink in, you see. Let it sort of drive itself into the, uh, deep into the abdomen. <laughs> There's nothing in the world worth holding on to. So it's all, it's all a chimera, it's all a phantasm, it's all a dream. See, that's, that's basically. Now, be careful because, again, the mistake then is, is to sort of detach from it, either because of fear that you might get caught up or because it's useless, but it's not useless. Why isn't it useless? Because... This is the realm where we are working towards our full liberation. And that's the purpose of being born as a human being, from a Buddhist point of view. So uh, our lives take on a fullness of meaning when we realize that, fine, in this this make-believe world, this is where I'm going to find my liberation. It doesn't destroy the world, you see, it doesn't destroy the world. So there's a question asked of the Buddha. Um, Where is it that the four great elements are destroyed, come to an end? Now the four great elements, earth, fire, water and air, are basically saying, where does the material universe finish? Where does it collapse? Where does it end? And he says, "Um, "This this is the wrong question. The question is, where do the four great elements not find a footing? Not find a footing. And then he comes out with his very clear statement. There is a consciousness which is not coloured, not touched by any of the senses. This includes the mind. This includes emotions. Without boundary. So therefore there's no phenomena. And in all directions full of light. And that's, that's a clear statement about the about the unconditioned. See? So to discover that is to find a very different relationship to the world we live in. And that's what he's living in. When he, when he talks about himself as the Tathagata, the Tathagata is, tra- uh, translates best as the one who's transcended. So he's living in a, in a, in a very different world from us. <laughs> he, he says things like, the world argues with me. I don't argue with the world. <laughs> he has a very different relationship to it. But 
we ourselves can touch upon it, you see, by entering into this position of the observer and by then re-entering into the world with right intention. See, that's why he says, those who are mindful are in the vicinity of, are in the presence of Nibbāna. See? And that's all we're trying to practice here uh, within this world, eh? this, this, uh, as he calls it, this fathom-long body. So the world we experience is all here. It's not, it's not out there. It doesn't deny the reality of, of the world out there, but we can only experience what this consciousness experiences, and this consciousness can only experience what the body will give it. Yeah, through the senses, through the brain, through contact, through, uh, through, through, through whatever comes into the body, it creates this world. It throws it outwards and makes it real to itself. So our problem is to make this world the one in which we attain this liberation and this continual state of contented happiness. Now, is the path easy? Well, of course it isn't. It's going to be difficult. <laughs> And there's this lovely, uh, lovely little dialogue where somebody says to the Buddha, this teaching, you know, this practice of one is very difficult. He says, yes, it is. See, because he's complaining. He says, well, it is, it is. It's gradual, you know. It's, he says, but, um, but people do it and they're successful. And he says, oh, yeah, well, successful. Well, he says, they, they achieve Nibbāna. And the questioner says, Nibbāna, so what? See, he says, well, <laughs> he says, when you're there, you are contented and with it happy. Those are the two words he uses. Contented and with it happy. So that's how he... That, he's telling us how he experiences the world. He's contented. right? Which means there's whatever arises and passes away, whether it's painful or, or whether it's pleasurable or unpleasurable, he remains in a state of contentment. This is the way it is. Hmm? And underneath that, there is this... Um, there is this state of happiness, which is not, uh, he's not talking about emotional. He's not talking about the emotional happiness, right? Because even in the Buddha heart, emotions, although they are uh, always beautiful, they're always in some form of uh, love, compassion, joy, and equanimity, he's not confused by that. Hmm? See, there's another lovely passage where Ananda, who's his uh, companion for the last 20 years of his life, uh, he's telling people how wondrous the Buddha is. And he goes through all the different things the Buddha can do, like, uh, you know, he can fly through the air, he can do this. And the Buddha's listening to this, and he says, well, that's true, Ananda, this is true. But the Buddha also knows, the Tathagata also knows when a thought arises and passes away. Yeah? When a mental state arises and passes away. See, he's not confused by this personhood, by this personality. Um, and of course, he doesn't. Uh, upon his liberation, he doesn't crack up into some sort of schizophrenic, having lost the self. <laughs> uh, that 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 congealment of a personality is still there, and it's presented as a charisma, as something very powerful that people are obviously moved by when uh, when they meet him. So. Nothing is lost. See, this is what he keeps saying. Nothing is lost in the process of liberation. Everything is given back. What is lost, what is annihilated, is greed, this acquisitiveness, this wrong relationship with things, aversion, and that fundamental delusion of who we are. See? 
Now, the second, that's all to do with pleasurable part of life, you might say. The second part, the second uh, uh, hindrance is to do with aversion. So we've caught a little bit with boredom. But um, we can include in aversion those, those uh, you know, painful states that we experience, like anxiety and depression. And um, those things, uh, what we have to understand, that they are, uh, they are they're not to be um, fought. You see, we're never trying to fight the given. We're always trying to open up to it and allow it to express itself. And no matter, even if it becomes very difficult, you just sort of stay within the bonfire. You know, just let it burn, you see. This is the distinction between purgatory and, and hell. If you're brought up Catholic like me, that's a very clear distinction. Because <laughs> one, one you can get out of and the other one you can't. So <laughs> there's, no, there's no permanent hell realm in the Buddhist understanding. But we enter into hell, we enter into a hell state when our identity with something hellish for a moment becomes our reality. So in a state of panic, in a state of deep despair, in a state of deep depression, those are hell states. And when you're in one of those states, you cannot see an exit. You know, you cannot see an exit. And, of course, it passes, hopefully. Um, and in the passing, there's that reflection. You see, there's a reflection. If, uh, as a meditator of having fallen into a deep identity with that state. Now, how do you, how do you not do that, you see? Not, you don't do it. You, you, you stop yourself doing that by staying in the body, by not moving, by not allowing the mind with its thoughts to grasp your, uh, to grasp your attention. So as long as you're in the body with those feelings, you see, um, no matter how difficult it is, um, you're, not, you're not caught up in them, you see. But as soon as you start trying to move away from it, as soon as you trying to push away, or as soon as you sink into it and let the thoughts take it over, yeah? like, I can't handle this, you know, this is too much. See, as soon as those thoughts take over, you get swallowed into, that, into the fire, you see. So you have to be, what we're trying to do is to, to hold that position, you see, to hold the position and to just allow the body, allow these emotional states to express themselves as physical feelings, you know, to actually feel it physically. And in so doing, they're actually burning themselves out. Unfortunately, there's a lot of stuff down there. So you have to be, you have to be extraordinarily patient with it. And when it gets too much, especially on a retreat like this, you just cut out. You just go for a walk. You just, you just, um, you know, displace your attention elsewhere for a little while. And then after a while, you take a deep breath and you, you, you get your courage back and you go back into the, back into the fire. <laughs> and eventually, you know, like you, it, it does actually begin to lessen, and you, uh, you're not so. I don't know, you're not so um, overcome by these things. Overcome by these things. The other side of aversion is, is um, paradoxically, uh, very um, pleasurable. I mean, there's nothing like a bit of cruelty to make you happy. You know, you poke somebody in the eye, it's good fun, isn't it? You know? <laughs> 
uh, anger, you like being angry people, it sort of, you know, it gets rid of that sort of, you know, uh, that sort of um, hot energy. So anger, hatred, hatred, very, very enjoyable, sitting there hating somebody. Mm. <laughs> because uh, it's only when the hatred is going out, it's only when the anger is going out, it's only when the cruelty is going out that it feels pleasurable. When you actually turn inward to sit with it, it's a, it, it's a very nasty sort of acidic burn that's inside your body, which is difficult to be with. And that, of course, is what we have to do. We have to turn inward and just feel the anger as a very uh, raw energy. And uh, again, you know, you might be a little um, disappointed, should we say, to find out that there's a lot of it down there. Because... <laughs> Because as you open up to this stuff, the more it comes up. And really that's what we have to um, recognize in our practice, that as you open up to your psyche, as you open up to your heart, then it will release stuff. And the more open you are, the more it will release it at a greater speed. (laughs) So it's it's an old truism. It's got to get much worse before it gets better. But if you can hang on in there and take, take your time and do little bits, you know, and then in your daily life, just to keep a, a general eye out on old habits which you know are reinforcing these things, then you'll see over a period of time uh, the heart becomes much more easier. It's, you know, it's easier to live with. It's softer. Mm. When I say time, think 25 years. <laughs> I don't need to have any false hopes. You know what I mean? So really that now covers, uh, in a sort of general way anyway, the five hindrances, which um, just about covers everything. I haven't dealt with guilt or um, shame and all that. Maybe maybe tomorrow I can say something about that. Uh, But very quickly, guilt, shame, remorse, they're the consequences of the second tier of, of... of actions which move into harming. Mm. So that's, your, that's what happens. So as soon as acquisitiveness, uh, as soon as you move from acquisitiveness, you're always doing harm, either to yourself or to somebody else. And then with that, uh, the heart responds with fear of consequence. And that's your dread. And uh, it depends on your self-esteem as to whether you feel shame or not. You know, like, I don't do those sorts of things, but I've just done it. <laughs> and remorse is the healing, is part of the compunction, the healing part, where you try and uh, put that right, you see. And um, it's, um, uh, what do they call that now? Repentance, see? Repentance I know it's a very sort of Christian phrase, but repentance is the process of remorse. And that's very healing to the heart, you see. And um, that's a secondary layer which comes upon action based on those qualities that cause harm. Inescapable. And all that we're talking about now, these past two talks about all this... um, all these things of the five hindrances, this is really what we mean by karma. This is really what we mean by karma. And I hope to make that more clear 
um, as the week goes on. So now for those of you who are particularly new, it, you know, it's, it sounds like a, a lot to sort of keep in your head and all that. But in your meditation, you see, when something comes up, um, all we're doing is opening up to it, being completely uh, aware of it, feeling it fully, and just allowing it to manifest, that's all. And when we feel any reaction to it of wanting to indulge or wanting to reject, we try to become aware of that too. And we just wait for that to pass away and we go back to the presenting object. It's, you know, that is your basic instruction. And it works for all of these hindrances. See? So um, if, if you wonder, now what am I going to do? This has turned up. Oh my God, what did he say? <laughs> See, don't, don't get into those sorts of thoughts. Just know that all we have to do is allow the heart to manifest, allow the body to manifest what it feels at any given moment and be aware of your relationship to it. And that's it. And in so doing, you must have attained that level of, of the knower, the level of the objective observer. And everything else takes care of itself, you see. The heart will heal itself. You don't have to do anything. See, it's like the body. When you, when you cut yourself, who heals it? Huh? The body does it. You don't get in there and urge these little cells to meet. They just do it themselves. It's exactly the same with the heart, you see. It, it's just an energy system. It's just like the weather. There are storms and hurricanes and typhoons and you're just waiting for them to blow out. See? It just takes patience. Perseverance, that's all. And when a sense of peace comes, see, when everything's rather still and there seems to be only the breath, that's when you really centre on the breath and keep your attention right there, driving it, as it were, not with you know heavy force, but just keeping it very still on the breath. And what that does is it draws all the powers of the mind and heart into this looking. And it becomes very fine, very sharp, you see? So that when something draws your attention, this microscope sort of turns upon it. And all the things that we're talking about become more and more obvious to us. And in so doing, it increases our, our faith in the process. I trust... That my words have been of some assistance. May you be liberated from all suffering arising from profound delusion sooner rather than later. I feel terrible if you don't say that. I feel abandoned, unappreciated. So if you take a little break. And, uh, and then we'll uh, we'll do our last session together. Uh, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/slash/donate.